This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. With the second pick in the 2016 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select Carson Wentz, quarterback, North Dakota State. This past week, Carson Wentz, a late bloomer, became the number two pick in the NFL Draft, which raises the question, do athletes like Wentz succeed in spite of the fact that they bloom late or because of it? Here to address that question, which has profound implications for our kids and the world of youth sports, is David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you for having me. I felt a sense of urgency to call you because of the NFL draft and because of a guy named Carson Wentz. I just want to read you the headline uh, from the Washington Post. Uh, Carson Wentz shows that quarterback camps just might be ruining quarterbacks. This is a story by Adam Kilgore. He says, as the freshman team quarterback at Bismarck Century High, Carson Wentz stood five foot eight and weighed 120 pounds. A growth spurt allowed him to become the projected varsity starter by junior year, but a wrist injury delayed those plans. In any event, didn't play much football in high school. Uh, and then the, the, the author goes on to say, it. I love this phrase, the football industrial complex devotes untold resources into, to, into developing and finding quarterbacks, the most coveted commodity, most glamorous position in sports. What does it say about the efficiency of the system in place that the NFL's top pick might be a lower division college player who didn't start as, at quarterback until his senior year of high school? David Epstein. What do you think about Carson Wentz, and what does it tell us? We're actually, in many cases, ruining people who might go on to become elite athletes. Um, in, in Carson's case, I think there are two, two major themes um, of this story uh, that testify to both the inefficiencies but also just the ills of our incessant march toward early, structured, hyper-specialized training in athletes. The first it's just simply, since it mentioned that he was a he was a small, you know, he clearly wasn't physically fully physically developed um, at the time when selections for uh, college was happening, right? And we know that if you look at all basically any um, any team, any sport below the very top elite level, you see the so-called relative age effect, meaning that you get um, you get an overrepresentation of people who are born in the early part of the selection year, right? Because when the selection, the earlier and earlier the selection starts, the more coaches mistake uh, biological maturation for talent and potential. So they'll insist that, well, this, you know, this 12-year-old is, has higher potential than that 12-year-old, but really one of them is like nine months older than the other, and at that age, that's a tremendous difference in biological maturity. And so you basically separate people and you disadvantage the ones that were just less biologically developed so to such a great degree um, that, that they have no chance to get back into the pipeline. And so in Carson's case, you know, m most people like him who had his potential will have fallen off the pipeline because maybe that biological maturation won't come for one or two more years, and they will just be so far away from the pipeline that they'll never even have a chance to get back in it. So this is just a lucky case. 
but I guarantee you there are more of him that we're we're cutting all the time. You know, now some other countries, like in soccer, have are tracking sort of different biological parameters to make sure that they aren't cutting people. You know, just because they're um, just because their biological age isn't matching up quite with their chronological age yet. So that that's one case. The other is that there's a lot of uh, burgeoning body of science suggesting that this sort of good-intentioned, you know, as I always talk about it, the 10,000 hours sort of inspired approach that says, okay, we know, we've seen how to make some of the best athletes. Right? We know the technical drills they do and the structured coaching. So all we have to do is move that earlier in life, and then we can give people a head start and make them better. And it turns out that what makes the best 10- and 12-year-old teams is not what makes the best 20- and 25-year-old uh, athletes. This highly structured approach that, that might work for a sport like golf where it's very static and you're just doing the same repetitive movement and you're not relying on what sports scientists call anticipatory skills, which is the ability to judge a dynamic situation in motion. For the sports that, that require that, which is almost all of the ones we care about, um, what you actually want is this sort of broad base of, of exposure to different types of sports early on and only in, in an unstructured manner. Right? Like if you see go in Brazil, you see the kids aren't even playing soccer. They're all playing futsal, which is sort of this like improvisational version. And then you, you specialize later. So it's, it's, not the, it's not the Tiger Woods kind of path that, that everyone, you know, that, that we sort of lionize that produces most of the great athletes. In most sports, it's more like the Roger Federer path, where he played a huge number of sports as a kid. Even when he wanted to focus in on tennis, his parents wouldn't let him. They forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer um, before he could focus in on tennis. Or the Steve Nash, right, two-time NBA MVP, normal size guy, didn't even own a basketball until he was 13 years old. And that's, that's actually the norm, not the exception. The exception is the, is the Tiger Woods path, and, and usually it's really only in those more kind of static sports. So I think, you know, we're really, we're really moving in the opposite direction of what sports science is telling us. And one of the funny um, sort of outcomes of this is that we don't really produce pro athletes from big cities anymore. A lot of pro athletes, like basketball especially, used to come from big cities. Now in big cities, kids have to specialize so early just to make the middle school team that they actually get off what's the best development path. And so sort of with good intentions, I think, of giving young athletes a head start, we've just made sure that they don't come from the, the places that have the most competitive youth teams anymore. Well, it's so interesting. And Wentz did not come from a big city. And, and, and here again, quoting from the Washington Post piece, Kilgore's Washington Post piece, he says, Wentz, some believe, is not a top prospect despite late Despite blooming late, he is in some readings a top prospect because he bloomed late. His delayed progression allowed him to develop well-rounded athletic skills and avoid the overcoaching, and this is a quote, and in some cases detrimental coaching many young quarterbacks received. And then it goes on to quote an NFL, uh, a former NFL quarterback, Jeff Christensen, who says, it's killing the position. It's destroying it. I don't think Wentz ever went to a quarterback coach. There are three or four guys that I... Uh, that I had as a coach that never went to a quarterback coach and they're further along than had they gone to a guy and become a mechanical robot. It's a glaring, glaring problem. Yeah, this this sort of highly structured mechanical 
coaching, sort of one-size-fits-all coaching, like these are the mechanics and here's how you should make them. Like we shouldn't, we shouldn't be holding on to that anymore. Even when we look at simple movements, take something really simple that everyone can do, like running, right? And the idea was, okay, there's, there's got to be a, mo- a biomechanically, like perfectly efficient way to run. So all we have to do is coach everyone to have very efficient movements, you know, not a lot of wasted movement in the joints, et cetera, et cetera. And it turns out that actually your energetically speaking, you know, your your running efficiency has very little to do with any of that stuff. <laughs> and that there's there's not a one size fits all and that people actually have subtle differences in their body they have to get used to and sort of find the most biomechanically efficient mechanism for them and that grows sort of organically as they get a chance to try themselves out. So some of the runners who have who use need like the least energy, least oxygen to go a given pace, you would never guess it from looking at their running form. You say, oh, that's bad running form. Right? And that and that hold that seems to hold for movements in general. So there isn't just this one kind of textbook style. And in fact, you have to. I think the the science is sort of suggesting more and more that you have to give people a chance to organically find what works for their body because there are more differences than we can really pick out. Um, and, and one of the phrases I use a lot to, to help people sort of think about that is learning like a baby, right? If you think of uh, the, the skills that we need to learn language are actually quite similar to some of the skills that quarterbacks use. So quarterbacks view the field and they have to make decisions really, really quickly. So they have to use what's called chunking, which is they see pieces like on a chessboard they have to quickly extract meaning from them that gives them a hint to what's going to happen in the future, and then they just make a snap decision. That's actually what we do with language. So, like, if I gave you 20 random English words, you'd have trouble repeating them back to me. But if I put those same 20 English words in a sentence, you might remember it and repeat it back to me because you've learned a system that allows you to put that in a meaningful context. So you, you immediately can, can remember it and take meaning from it. Uh, so you chunk language the way a quarterback chunks players on the field. And the best way to learn that is actually through sort of less structured immersion first, right? So the learning like a baby is like if you think of the way a baby learns language, you toss them in, they're totally immersed, they struggle, they fail, you can't really overcoach them because they, you know, they're starting from nothing, you wouldn't even know what to do. And then later, you teach them the grammar and sort of the finer points and things like that, once they've learned how to learn language in the beginning. And I think in many cases, what we're doing with quarterbacks and other athletes is the opposite. We're trying to teach them the grammar first, and then later you kind of put them in game situations or, or more immersion situations, and that's backward. It doesn't mean that they won't get better early on, but as the levels get higher and they have to execute more rapidly, um, it's, it has to be fluent, basically. The You're way listening the to is. Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My guest, David Epstein, is author of The Sports Gene, which has a new afterword exploring the pitfalls of kids who specialize too early in one sport. So, so you are going to love this quote that I got, and I'm going to play it from Faye Vincent, former Major League Baseball commissioner who has spoken to a lot of Hall of Fame players. And before he passed, before Warren Spahn, the great left-handed pitcher, Hall of Famer, uh, before he passed away, Faye Vincent spoke to him and he said, I once said to him, Warren, who taught you how to pitch? And his answer is the single most brilliant answer on any question I've ever received talking to anybody. 
And he looked at me as if I had to be the dumbest person he'd ever talked to about baseball. And in sort of a, a patronizing way, he said to me, Commissioner, hitters taught me how to pitch. <laughs> there you go. So it's, and, you know, he was fortunate that I'm sure there wasn't some perfectly well-defined, like, progression or some all-star travel league you know, in, where he was growing up that if he didn't play on it as an 8-year-old, he wouldn't be allowed to play on it as a 9-year-old. Right, and that's not for the athletes. That's because other people have a financial interest in keeping their athletes, the athletes, the youth athletes, away from other sports and kind of paying for their leagues. But that's that's uh, that's what it is. I mean, that that's the whole the whole trick is kind of getting into these situations where you're learning perceptual skills, sort of like flashcards almost. Right? Is in fact, if you tell, if you were to tell a pitcher or a hitter, in many cases what it is they're doing scientifically to be able to react so quickly, they actually get worse. So you don't want them to learn those things in a highly technical way where they can articulate it. You want that stuff in, like, the back of the brain where it's happening really, really rapidly with things that you can't exactly articulate what you're doing. Because that's the only way you can do it. Uh, it's the only way you can do it fast enough. We have an injury epidemic of, like, adult-style injuries in, in, in pitchers now. It's, I think a third of Major League Baseball has had Tommy John surgery, and Major League Baseball pitchers pitch less than ever. Actually, on that subject, an important new book that just came out is a Jeff Passan, who wrote a book called The Arm. Have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I heard it's great. I was actually just with a group of surgeons, a lot of whom are, are team surgeons, and they said he really nailed it. So and, was... and, and so given, given all these surgeries and given the overuse and given the fact that it's Better and by the way, when we spoke three years ago, you know, after we spoke about all the scientific synthesis you did in your book, I asked you for advice for my own kids and for any kid, and you said your advice is don't overspecialize too early. Since we spoke a few years ago, you have now written an afterword to your book specifically on this subject because more scientific evidence has come out. Give us a sense now of the latest science that suggests it's, it's to uh, a, a youth athlete's disadvantage to specialize too early. And then after you do that, I want, I want you to tell the audience, is there a sweet spot, a certain age, that really generally is the right time to start narrowing down and going for one sport or one position? So, so to the first question, I think there are sort of two separate streams of uh, where the science is building, and one has to do with injury and health, right? So there was, um, there were a number of observational studies, but now we actually have some longitudinal data, you know, following athletes over time, over several years, um, to look at what are the causes of these adult-style overuse injuries that we're now seeing in youth athletes. And by adult-style, I mean things like stress fracture in the back, uh, torn ligaments and tendons, th things that are very likely to impede their athletic career overall and probably ultimately their adult health to some degree, so things that they're, they're likely never to completely get rid of. Um, and interestingly, one of the top predictors, so the, the number one predictor of an adult-style overuse injury in a kid was um, that they were highly specialized. So they had, they had given up, I think by age 12, all of their sports to focus only on one, and they were doing that sport at least like nine months a year, and they're on travel teams and so on. And I think the second best uh, predictor was, was family socioeconomic status, which is really kind of frighteningly hilarious in a way. So only the well-off families could pay for these like highly structured year-round coaching clinics and travel teams. 
And so we created like a health epidemic that's hitting well-off families, which is kind of unusual. I have to stop right there. That, that's so fascinating. So it actually is a disadvantage. You would think that, my gosh, these families with all this money who can afford the training for their kids, what an advantage those kids have. And it's the opposite? In, in many cases. I mean, it's the opposite if they get injured or they don't, they don't learn the right way. And again, you know, most, a lot of um, wealthy families tend to cluster in, in certain urban areas around the country. And those areas have like the, the, what's called the odds ratio. So there's some really interesting data that a, a guy in Canada has been compiling that looks at odds ratios of making it to the pros in a given sport based on the size of a, of a kid's hometown. And so an odds ratio of two just means something is twice as likely as normal, three, three times as likely as normal. And the odds ratios in large towns for, you know, almost across the board have gone down to close to zero. And in towns of 100,000 and down, they're like 10 or 20 times normal. Um, because those kids, you know, first of all, they're, they're not over-specialized, so it's, it's not a, a skill-learning disadvantage, but also they're not getting hurt the same way. And obviously, the, you know, most, a lot of the wealth is concentrated in these cities, and that's not where, that's not where the elite athletes are coming from. It's not to say that it's, it's, there aren't advantages to having high socioeconomic status. Uh, clearly, there are. And, and in many cases, I think people who have an economic interest in youth sports are, are like, for the worse forcing people to pay for things or they won't like let them be on the team next year, right? So there's a there's a team not too far away from where I live in Brooklyn that has U6 pre-travel soccer team or something and you know because I'm sure 5-year-olds can't find competition in a city of 9 million good enough that they 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 don't have to travel. Um but like if you're not on that team then you're not on the next year, right? And that's not in the athlete's interest, it's certainly not in the parents' interest. That's in the interest of the people who want to, you know, want to have a pipeline that, that keeps customers for as many years as they possibly can. So we have better youth teams. We have better, I'm sure the youth teams competition, like these traveling teams are better than it's ever been. Um, but the, the translation rate of kids who are on those teams, on these like junior national teams it, to the top level is horrible. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. My guest, David Epstein, is author of The Sports Gene, which has a new afterword exploring the pitfalls of kids specializing too early in one sport. Somewhere in the mid-teens sounds like it's a good sweet spot to really rev it up and focus, but it could be later. This is like the gazillion dollar question and nobody can claim to have perfect data on this and i think ultimately it's probably going to be somewhat sport dependent so so for starters anything that requires a pre-puberty peak like gymnastics is a whole whole different story um and golf i think the jury's out i think it may be that that early specialization you know aside from the injury risk for a skill wise maybe does work for golf i think it's unclear Um, but most sports aren't like golf uh, and I think the data is sort of converging around a general um, sort of 14, 15-year-old time where athletes who go on to become elite will, will start to specialize. I think there's some data coming out of uh, Division One, you know, high-level scholarship athletes that, that finds that I think the scholarship kids specialized, what was it, average age of just, it was like 14 point, Eight or something like that. Um, no, I think it was fifteen point three. It's in that in that range there, 
and the kids who had wanted to play intercollegiately but didn't make it and had to play intramural were like 13.6 or something mm. like that. And so, you know, that, that's only a small difference in average, but there's also a lot of variations. I mean, so some of those, some of those kids who specialized earlier were probably very, very early. So I, I don't think anybody knows for sure. I think it's sort of converging in those mid-teen years. But some of that, you know, we don't know if that's because that's the perfect way to go or it's because at some point you, you get into high school and somebody, you, you can't even hold out any longer, right? Like there are a lot of high schools that are moving toward forcing some degree of specialization, which was totally foreign even when I was in high school. Uh, so that's, I think, the question that really needs to be investigated now. When is it best? And it's, there are surprising findings coming out of this. Like when I started talking about this a little, people on, on Twitter and things like that would say to me, like, oh, yeah, whatever, maybe in your stupid American sports, but not in soccer, you know, not in world football. You know, we, we specialize super early. And right as that was happening, a longitudinal study of the German soccer team, of the German soccer system, which included the players on the national team who had recently won the World Cup, came out and showed the exact same pattern. The members of the national team had participated in more unstructured or what they call athlete-driven um, activity when they were younger. They continued more of that as they developed. They gave up other sports later, and, and that included sports that they were playing sort of regularly in their recreational time, not just organized sports. And only, I think, after the age of 22 did they start equaling the, the sub-elite players in the number of structured time um, that, that was in their playing. So it wasn't just a matter of you know, trying multiple sports or sort of learning multiple physical skills. It was also this athlete-driven or this learning like a baby kind of unstructured time, and it and it, I mean, it even surprised me how long that held on um, for soccer. So I think people are really reluctant to believe it, but I think you have to, when somebody puts in the time to do a serious study, you have to give that some credence. So that really brings us it brings us full circle in a lot of ways. It brings us full circle to your personal story because I remember reading in your book you said track and field was your sport in college, right? Yep, that's right. I, I had my own sampling period. I did football, basketball, baseball in high school. Um, did season cross country. Did some track. So yeah, ultimately I did five different sports in in high school, and I really wanted to participate in sports in college. Um, but of course, you know when you're switching sports all the time. Um, for one, I'm small, so I I saw like pretty you know, late in my high school career that it was very unlikely. Um, we had a great, great football team, but it was very unlikely I was going to have a college career in football or basketball. Um, and I'd gotten injured in baseball. And, and so I was doing track at one point to stay in shape for football and, and found that I really liked it. Um, but I wasn't that good. Uh, and so I walked on in college, of course, meaning I wasn't good enough to be recruited. And I was 800-meter runner, half-mile, and I was paired with one of the blue chip recruits, I think, because this sort of tradition of, you know, you put the walk on with the blue chip recruit, and then like the walk ons don't come back anymore. You don't have to deal with them. Probably, I don't. That wasn't that was unspoken, but um, so I guess it was almost in a way a good thing that I had run a lot of my. I, I had this plan to make up for lost time in high school since I hadn't been running track for a long time to do like tons of miles. So I was running like, you know, eighty miles a week or something the summer before my senior year of high school, and that didn't work for me at all. In fact, I got worse, which is a little weird. Um, but in college, I said, okay, that didn't work for me. And because I was a walk-on, nobody really cared what I was doing. Like, I had run, like, when I was a junior in high school, I was, like, 20 seconds slower in the 800 meters than the guy I was paired with who was already a national athlete for Canada. 
Um, and nobody really cared what I was doing. So I was allowed to kind of fumble my way through my own training and sort of learn about my own body and things like that. And I would train with this guy, and I couldn't do the same training he would do, so I would do like sort of lesser multiples sometimes and take more rest days and things like that. And I started, funny things started happening. I, I started improving really, really rapidly, and he stagnated. And down like, you know, 30 seconds from when I'd been running when I was a junior in high school, which is when like recruiting and things like that is are happening, um, you know, about a minute and 52 or a minute and 53 seconds in the half mile, which is now getting a lot better, I, I beat him, and he never beat me again, and I kept getting faster, and he stagnated. And so our coaches and teammates sort of told me, like, oh, man, you're a walk-on, no talent, keep getting better, so tough. And him, it was like, oh, so, ta- so much talent, not getting better, he's a head case, which I think he wasn't until he started getting a pep talk before every race, which would make anybody a head case if it's the, you're the only one it's happening to. And I was doing less. I was doing less work than he was, so I knew this wasn't. There was something. There was there was something else behind this reality, but I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't going to say anything at the time because it was just sort of a nebulous idea in my head, and and I, it, it led to all this cool stuff for me. Like I won my university's award for the four-year athlete who who quote achieved significant athletic success in the face of unusual challenge and difficulty. <laughs> right, so I have a big glass box with a lion in it, and. Um, <laughs> like my unusual challenge and difficulty just being that I stunk when I started. Um, you know, and in the reporting of my book, as, as I, I learned that, you know, the reality behind this was very likely that I was what's called a low baseline high responder, which is my, my physiology starts not well equipped for the kind of endurance running that I was, I was doing, but that that actually has zero bearing on how trainable you are once you find the right training fit for your physiology, zero. So usually we're used to saying we, we test somebody and we say, well, this is how talented, you know, here's the, here are the people from 1 to 10 and most talented because that's how they did today. But in fact, trainability, I think what exercise genetics is showing us is that trainability is the most important kind of talent and that it might be completely uncorrelated from how good you are at baseline in certain athletic skills. And that was the case for the skill I was engaged in and, and you know, I talk about some of my own genetic results. Um, in the book as well, but that just, I, I think the, the main lesson that I want to share from that is one that there's a perfect training, like no two genotypes, for that matter, no two psychologies are the same in the world. And so if you want the optimal outcome for every person, you have to help that, let them find the best environment for their inimitable genome, but also that the ability to improve with the right kind of training and your ability before you start training might be completely uncorrelated. And that's a message that does not get through to coaches who do selection whatsoever. So, so let me, so I, I want to get that phrase down again. L- what is it? Low baseline? High responder. So I was very bad at the beginning, low baseline, and I had a very high training response to certain types of training, so I'd improve very quickly. I have to tell you that this might be the best phrase to use in almost every circumstance in life when you are trying to achieve something great, whether it's getting a great job. Hey, you know, why, why haven't you accomplished more? Well, I'm a low baseline, high responder. <laughs> and I didn't make up that phrase, so that's... Uh, I love that. Now, now, let me ask you, this issue of trainability, 
Because again, you have taken such a deep dive into the genome. And as you told me when we spoke a few years ago, as much as we know about the genes today and their correlation with athletic performance, we know so little. But you're telling me that there is something called trainability and that one might be predisposed at least to certain types of training, to responding to certain types of training. So I've got teenage kids. They love sports. What can you tell me to help me and my fellow parents about identifying the trainability in our kids? You know, it's kind of fortunate for me. I was in an endurance uh, sport where there was research going on in exactly the types of training that I was interested in because in, endurance is a, tends to be an easier uh, thing to study. Right? And a lot of, but the fact is these patterns, um, even when you take them over to motor skills, you know, perceptual motor skills, the things that, uh, we care about a lot of other sports that, that differentiate experts from novices. We don't know the genes. That is, that is for sure. There's, there's one that I mentioned that has to do with some brain messenger in the book, but, but it's heavily caveated. We don't, you know, we don't know a lot about it yet. But we do see that same uh, trainability effect, right? And it's different depending on the skill. So in some skills, w- there's a, there is a correlation between baseline ability and ability to be trained, and in some there isn't, and in some it's big and in some it's small. And in some cases, like the military has done a lot of looking at who can improve really well a perceptual motor skill for things like complex air traffic controlling tasks and stuff like that. And what they've found, interestingly, is that with practice, people will get more similar until you make the task a certain level of complexity, at which point people get more different with practice. So that's where you find who's trainable and who's not. So for parents, it's probably as the, as the levels get a little higher, you, you start to really see that differentiation, like who gets better um, and who starts falling behind. And because we don't know enough about genes, we know some things about physiology, right? Like we know people who have more explosive physiology need more rest and should train in more sort of high-intensity bouts but with lots more rest whereas people who have less explosive physiology, and that's a whole suite of characteristics that makes you less explosive, can tolerate a much larger training load, um, won't get rid of what explosiveness they have uh, if they do larger training, don't need as much rest. And so their advantage is they can and have to train more, um, whereas explosive people, you actually, we actually are usually overtraining them, right? Like people don't, don't think about this, but Usain Bolt, when he busted out as a teenager and everyone said, wow, he really trains, he'll really be great. And then he was injured and not running well for like three straight years, and he switched coaches and a coach who let him sort of listen to his body and take lots of days off, and then he just exploded on the scene and never looked back. So, 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 I, have, so I have to say, if our kids are getting coached by someone, a lot of these coaches probably do not know this idea of more explosive versus less explosive and the implications for how one should train. But now you've given us this information. I mean, how do we translate that in our own circumstances, how do you identify a more explosive versus a less explosive athlete, in, whether it's tennis or basketball or, or baseball or any sport? Is there a way to identify it and, and for a parent to actually keep your eye out on how your kid is being trained? Yeah, so I mean, in some countries, like people like me get a muscle biopsy and then we learn all kinds of things, you know, and in some other countries, they do that to tailor, to tailor training, but that's usually for athletes at a higher level. Um, but I think there are things that you can intuit without going to those lengths. So let's say like lowest common denominator, because most people aren't going to do muscle biopsy or whatever, um, is 
just paying attention, right? Like if a kid has a good vertical jump, changes directions, you know, looks like Barry Sanders, changes directions really quick, has always been explosive, and, you know, that person is probably someone with explosive muscle physiology. Like if you had to do only one task, you know, I would look at something like a, like a vertical jump, for example. Um, and that won't give you a comprehensive measure. It absolutely won't. But we're talking about really simple things that will be highly correlated with how explosive you are. So a vertical jump, and let's say my sport is tennis, what, what, what should I do in tennis to see how I should train? So essentially, the important thing is to start learning about your own body and what works for you. And for me, that required like two years of trial and error training where nobody cared what I was doing. So I was at walk-on. Nobody cared if I was scoring at our conference meet. So I was left up to my own devices and to learn about my body. And I think that some of the best teams are adapting that because, it, you know, it would be great if we knew all the genes and all the physiology to, to tailor training ahead of time, but we don't. So teams like the Golden State Warriors have players keeping, like, really comprehensive training diaries, and you learn about yourself. Like, what worked? How did I feel after this? How was it last year? And so I think some of what's going on in this early non-specialization period is learning how to learn about yourself. And if we give the highly, too highly technical training... That doesn't happen. Then it's like the coach is being all the brains, and the learner never has a chance to learn about how they learn, so to speak, or to figure out what works for them and, and who they are. Now, I'm sure a lot of these kids will, will do well and things like that, but I guess the question is, will they realize their potential, and, and will they be doing what they want to do? And, and, and I don't know. You know, I, I, If I had one, one piece of advice looking back, right, like when I was, I was, out, when I was out of college, I was sure I was going to be a geologist, right? A couple of years later, I was a science writer at Sports Illustrated. You know, like, I've, I've learned not to, not to feel like I'm in a rush for those things. And the unique skills I brought from the sciences actually really sped me along the path at Sports Illustrated, which sounds crazy, but it wasn't the people who were trying to be the next NFL beat writer who were moving up the chain really quickly there. Right? It, was, it was the people who were kind of bringing something strange. And, and I think there's something to that, to, to being allowed to kind of fumble around and, um, and find yourself. What you just explained to me really reminds me also a little bit of the work of, do you know Carol Dweck, Mindset? A absolutely. I mean, I've actually listened to your interview with her. <laughs> oh, th you're the one. Yeah. <laughs> well, th thank you because – you know, I really, I mean, a lot of people obviously are looking to her, including athletes, but this whole idea of the growth mindset that you are not born with a fixed amount of intelligence or in sports, a fixed set of capabilities. And, you know, it's, it's the people who believe that is the truth and it is the truth who are willing to do the trial and error process uh, and really see at least closer to their fuller potential or achieve closer to their fuller potential. Yeah. Um, any final words of wisdom you have? Uh, yeah, uh, I think since you, since you brought up Carol Dweck, like, I think that's a really interesting point. And one thing I'd love to sort of see added to some of the things she talk about, talks about is not just, it's not just the growth mindset or the belief that you can improve because, you know, in anything by knocking your head against the wall, but to add to that, to search out the way that's uniquely best for you to improve that that's something you should know exists also. That should be part of your growth mindset, that, that if this training, if I'm on the same fad diet or training or learning program and it's working better for my four training partners or classmates or whatever than it is for me, maybe there's a reason for that and maybe I can go look for um, the best way for me individually to grow.
And I don't mean to be name-dropping, but have you ever read uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance? I haven't, but That's, I will now. Okay, you've got to. It's okay. You're, you're living it. But the whole <laughs> idea is when you see this gleam of light that you believe represents a certain truth, a certain reality, and other people haven't seen it or mentioned it yet, don't let that deter you from following that light because you might be on to something big. Of course, he mm -hmm. phrased it more elegantly than I did, but that's really what you're talking about. It's like finding what works for you and giving yourself the liberty to find out what works for you. Absolutely. I, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful coda. My thanks to David Epstein, author of The Sports Gene. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you're insanely curious, I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes. Look for the app with the purple microphone on your iPhone. Or if you're using another device, you can find the show on SoundCloud. My website is wavemaker.me. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening. <laughs>